Hello, welcome to yet another episode of But Where Are You From, a podcast by Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network, otherwise known as Be Seen. How have you all been? Have you all eaten yet? I hope so. I hope all you team noodlers, you team ricers have had your fill today. If not, then that's absolutely fine. If you're not into rice or noodles, maybe. I mean, who are you? But I've heard um, I heard recently there's team potato and team pasta. Is that a thing now? Anyway, I hope you're all well. Um, this week, we are entering into the world of publishing with Kaya Shang and Claire Coda. Kaya is an editor. Uh, she is making huge gains, pushing UK East and Southeast Asian authors into the book publishing world. I am forever grateful for Kaya's work in this realm, which sadly, as we'll hear about, is not exactly easy. We spent ages during our chat actually fangirling over Claire's debut novel, Woman Eating. Have you read it yet, any of you? It is currently out for you to buy at your favourite bookstore. So please get online and order that if you can, because it delves into so many different kinds of topics. Claire does describe what the book is all about in the following episode. One of the things, however, that it does delve into is mixed ethnicity identity. And I am really grateful during this chat that I had with Kaya and Claire for their openness about this topic. I always think about how I can support my daughter in a world where she will face situations where people will treat her a certain way based on the fact that she is mixed Chinese and white. Actually, recently I met a family in the park. I heard the parents speaking Cantonese, so my ears kind of pricked up. I've been hearing Cantonese a lot um, around the area where I live in West London. It was really good to chat, but sadly they were at the mercy of my really awful Cantonese. It was so embarrassing. I kept, I, I kept saying, oh, it's really bad. I'm really sorry, but they were really kind about my limited vocabulary. But the one thing that I did understand, she said, is your daughter mixed? And I said, yes. And then she replied, she's really beautiful. This was spoken, of course, with really good intentions. For me, it's a really loaded comment, especially when you're in a situation, you're not expecting it. And so when she said it, I wasn't sure how to respond because of course, it's an example of exoticizing, right? Based on the fact that my daughter is mixed. And of course, there's that internalized racism going on. Uh, which we all have. It's spoken so casually in that moment that it did give me a shock. I don't know if shock is the right word. It just took me back, I guess. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I have heard this from friends too, who are parents, uh, who have received a comment, oh, your kids will be so cute from people who are aware that I'm in an inter-ethnic relationship. So I've had that comment before my daughter was even born. Um, I am glad, however, to have the language and access to information in order to prepare my daughter as best I can around these topics and the fact that she could potentially face these comments directly. They're spoken to me now because I'm her parent and she's still really young. She's only four. But once she's older, she's actually going to start getting those comments directly and she won't. I guess be in the same situation as me where I already have some knowledge about how these comments can be really problematic and actually dehumanizing. So I'm glad in a lot of ways to be able to prepare and I don't have all the answers. I'm not gonna say that I have a workbook of exactly how to deal with these comments, but at least I can help her and talk it through with her with a bit of background knowledge. And that's thanks to so many resources out there 
I'll drop them in the show notes if you like, but there are plenty of books as well about it. There's um, Everyday Racism, uh, a book by the people who run the Instagram account of the same name who talk about this a lot. So that might be a good starting point. Yeah, so that was quite a heavy introduction. I apologize. Um, Before we hear from our guest, I have some exciting news for you. Have you ever wanted to get something off your chest? Is there something you want to tell the whole world, but you haven't had a platform yet? Well, listen on because our podcast is delighted to announce that we have a new segment coming called Listener Voicemails, where we'd like to hear from you. We're inviting all of you to send in voicemails where you can share any tidbit, any story, any fact, anything at all that you like from your own experiences and use that to offer more insights into what it means to be East and or Southeast Asian in the UK. So for more details on how to submit a listener voicemail and some ideas from prompts for you, then please go to bseen.co.uk forward slash voicemails thanks so much here we go without further ado let's get into the podcast thank you so much for tuning in and i hope you enjoy this episode Hello, Claire. Hello. <laughs> how are you? Good, yeah. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Is your throat okay? It is, yeah. But I do keep sneezing, just to warn you. And my nose is like kind of whistling. <laughs> so- <laughs> I was saying that I have really bad hay fever and I still actually still have a cough as well from COVID. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> See, this is yeah. the podcast episode that's good, just going to have a variety of bodily sounds. Just like, <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> out. I say to Claire, do we just like to keep it real at BC. If you cough or you sneeze, you want to do a fart, you want to burp. Like... Well, I don't really want to cough, but it happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how are you both? Yeah, we're good. Apart from various illnesses and, you know work stresses we are all good just glad to see both of you really yeah really excited uh claire i sent kaya a copy of your book because i was like oh you've got to read it so i was planning to anyway i was just super behind on all my millions of submissions that i haven't got back to agents on but i really enjoyed it so thank you oh thank you oh it's really nice that you sent it i should have arranged for my publicist to send you a copy i mean i was going to buy it anyway but it was it was a really nice surprise (laughs) (laughs) oh of course like I love it so much like it's just like it's one of those books where I just thought I really you know you just want a copy on your shelf I'm just like I want (laughs) to I send copies of my favorite we're going to talk about my favorite books I sent sent copies to Viv for her birthday I don't know if she wanted them but I sent her this like bumper pack oh my god my favorite literary novels that's so nice (laughs) oh there should be some kind of ec book box you should it was and she was like what what do you mean she was like what's literary i don't know what that means and i was like well my favorite authors are like literary (laughs) asian american writers so i just sent her this like massive package (laughs) that's so lovely yeah you should send us the list like let us know what you sent her because i will that'd be really cool uh yeah how was your talk the other day claire i saw that you did an east side voices type thingy thingy it was so nice. It was really lovely. Um, yeah, it was just nice being with like that group of people. Mm. And um, 
yeah it was just lovely the audience were really receptive as well so mm. it's nice no that's really <clears throat> cool I just think think like even when I was at uni like studying English lit and stuff like we never ever talked about EC authors like the canon of literature that we looked at was all just so it was like um I don't know like the poet laureates and stuff like that and yeah. um old English and middle English but it just oh never God, went yeah, outside I hate that oh, so much and I also hate Jane Austen not that it's <gasps> fine if you guys don't I just remember like loving like creative writing and loving like problematic that T.S. Eliot and like certain authors but then the majority of people that we studied I was like I really can't connect to this like I absolutely hate it like I would like I wouldn't even like I'm an editor and I didn't even read half of the Austin books to get an ace so I literally just looked on spark notes because I was like I hate this so much I'm not gonna read like, the whole book and don't need to. I'm gonna expose one of my friends from school like publicly because I am um... <laughs> So you know at A level you do like you read a book and you have you take the book in with you and you're allowed notes inside like you can underline passages mm-hmm. and you write mm-hmm. an essay. So my friend who <coughs> was just like Amy, I didn't read Pride and Prejudice. Can you mark up my book? I was like, okay. I I marked up her entire book. I underlined all the passages and highlighter. I wrote notes on the side. I gave her the book. We went in the exam and she got a higher mark than me. <laughs> no, oh, <laughs> I was so devastated. I was. <coughs> just like how did you not read the book and then manage to get like an a star off of my notes (laughs) you did something good (laughs) but yes thank you so much to both of you for coming on to the bc podcast um so i'm gonna ask you to both please introduce yourself maybe let's start with claire please tell us your name and what you do um i'm really bad at introducing myself i feel like my description of myself changes each time and then i just come across as a different person every time i do anything like this um okay so I'm Claire Koda and I am I never know what order to put this in but I'm a musician and an author sometimes I switch around but um yeah so I wrote Woman Eating that's my debut novel and uh, I also play the violin in like uh albums and film soundtracks and things like that Oh, wow. When did you start off on the musician career and how did that correlate with your author career? Um, I guess I've always been a musician. Um, not always. <laughs> but I started playing uh, when I was like 11, started playing the violin. Um, and I studied music at uni. And um, yeah, and then I went on to kind of start freelancing while I was at uni and then after. And... Yeah, I just still do it and I don't think I could stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and or I review books as well. So that kind of works around um, the music quite well. So the publication of Women Eating, just being able to, this sounds really negative, but like being able to like ignore all of that happening and just pretend that I'm just a musician instead. Um, and just I've just been focusing on like music things and pretending that I didn't write the book. <laughs> what do you mean? I would definitely claim to write Woman Eating. <laughs> I think it's just sometimes it's a bit overwhelming, I guess, that I have written a book and that there are people reading it and that they're like interpreting it in their own ways, which is fine. But um, yeah, it's just it's just all a bit strange. No one really prepares you for the fact that know it's just a really weird thing to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah so music's been like a really nice kind of thing to do on the side and I've been recording like a few albums and yeah it's been really nice well we definitely want to go a bit more into that and dig into you know all that all those things that you do, the little parts and how they all come together. But I feel like our other guests who, uh, if you could please introduce yourself, probably know a lot about this area too. So yeah, on to you, Kaya. Yeah, so I'm Kaya Shang. Professionally, I guess I'm an editor. I work at Simon & Schuster in the UK and on um, Scribner, which is our literary imprint, where I publish a mixture of literary fiction and the, also the odd non-fiction title. Um, outside of that, I'm currently attempting to be a writer to write a literary novel trying to find time as an editor is absolutely impossible I'm also a musician although I'm a really I would describe myself as a bad guitarist and singer and I was once a classical violinist really oh yeah (laughs) I also struggle with um with kind of introductions I think mainly because I fear that I come across as really annoying and pretentious maybe I do You don't, but I completely understand the fear. I don't, I don't know why I struggle so much with it, but I do. Yeah, it's really weird. Talking about myself is hard. Or no, it's like defining myself is hard, I think. So, yeah. yeah. We're all very complicated, aren't we? Like, we do so many different things and we are not our careers as well. Like, we are people outside of what we do to make money and that's such a big part of ourselves too. Like, I feel like, you know, the hobbies and interests at the end of a CV, when you put that at the end, sort of tag it on, like that should be right at the top because it plays a massive part in who you are. And yeah, I think it's really important that we do spend time digging into all those areas to build a bigger picture. You know, we're all human, we're not machines. Um, I'm going into like, I always start ranting on about capitalism eventually. So I need to like draw myself away. Oh no, don't don't stop on my behalf. I mean, I was about to say I'm a socialist. I was literally going to say, it's because of capitalism making us into machines, like we're not just that. But um, yes, furthermore onto that, um, obviously the podcast is called But Where Are You From? Uh, So I just want to get into that really, like how, I mean, obviously lots of people use that as a sort of really microaggressive kind of comment, like, oh, I don't think you're from around here, where are you from? But if it's okay with you, um, we would love to know, but where are you from? Uh, Okay, so I've been thinking about this for like the last day um, and it's such a hard question to answer um, and I don't really know where I'm from. I mean, I know where I'm from geographically. So my dad uh, is English and he grew up in Margate um, and this isn't a place, but like I feel like it is a part of where I'm from. So he grew up in Margate, he's an artist my mum's side, um, my mum's from Ichikawa in Chiba, um, in Japan. And um, <clears throat> yeah, her, her family, they, a lot of them were meteorologists and her brother is an archeologist as well. Um, and yeah, I'd say that kind of sums up where I'm from geographically. But um, I find it really hard to answer. I don't really know where I'm from because I'm mixed, I guess. Um, Mm. And the more I try to answer, the less I kind of know. Um, But I guess I'm from Margate. Yeah, I'm from Margate in Mm. Kent by the sea. Is that like a word for people from Margate? Like, do you have a special sort of collective term? Um, Well, the district Margate is in is called Thanet, so people say Thanetians quite a lot. (laughs) That's cool. 
well, well Kaya and I are actually discussing we, we, we want to come and visit you in Margate oh my god yeah we like Margate. we're inviting ourselves you don't have to see us yeah. Yeah, we're going to come to Margate and we'd love to. yeah come it will be it'll be getting really busy soon though so come like sooner rather than later because it gets quite mental um but yeah Margate is where I'm from Mm, what was it like growing up in Margate as someone of um you know mixed identity um it was like not great um so Margate used to be I'd say like 99% white um but it's a very like underprivileged area generally so or at least it used to be obviously it's changed quite a lot now um and so the a lot of people, I guess, who lived in this area, in Thanet generally, um, were very like disillusioned. Um, and a lot of people didn't have much. So I think that uh, when anyone kind of from the outside did come in, there was a lot of kind of animosity. And um, yeah, but yeah, it was, it was a weird place to grow up. I think there were maybe maybe three or four of us in my school were uh, Asian and then I think people in my school who weren't white maybe numbered like under 10 and there were about 600 or 700 in my school so it's very yeah it was it's weird um yeah mm-hmm. and um I guess you still live there so has it changed very much it's changed so much um it's it's crazy how much has changed like I can't believe that people actually want to live here or like visit here it's like ask me and Kaya it's so weird um I feel like Margate the Margate I grew up in just doesn't really exist anymore um and the bits of Margate that are kind of similar to I guess the bits that are preserved are like maybe parts of like streets in some places are kind of the same as they were before but um my god it's changed so much Mm. yeah it's it's really strange now it's desirable and yeah people think that like I'm really cool for living in Margate whereas it used to be something really embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) own it you own it we're gonna come visit you looking forward to the tour How about you, Kaya? Same question. Yeah, same in answer in the sense that it's such a complicated question for me, probably because I'm also mixed. Um, I'm London born and raised. My mum originally French with a tiny bit of Thai blood. My dad was Chinese. I find that I like to talk about him in the past tense, not because he's dead, but because he's never been present. He just abandoned us with nothing when I was a baby. And as someone that's obsessed with words and language, I've kind of noticed that recently and thought about it. Yeah, I find this question really hard to answer because when white people ask, I know I just say British Chinese because I know that they're looking at me and thinking you look East or Southeast Asian and that's what they want to know. But it's a lot more complicated than that for me in terms of identity. Like, I guess, like mixed, half, that half Chinese is like the simplest answer. I think I, the problem is I always, I grew up with just my mum in like in poverty in a council estate in North London and I actually always felt white until people basically told me that I wasn't um at the same time I had quite like a strange kind of 
upbringing my mom's very bohemian artistic so it wasn't like I really hung out with any of the kids on the estate either then I had a scholarship to a private school where it was sort of 99% white any people of color obviously also incredibly wealthy so I pretty much felt always like I didn't quite fit into any any space I was in which is I'm digressing now but yeah a, a difficult question for me to to answer as well for a number of reasons mm-hmm. yeah I found it interesting when you said that you identified as like why until someone said to you no you're not allowed to and that's um gives me a sense of, you know gatekeeping like someone's telling you who you are rather than you know you being allowed to find out who you are and you know your right to self-identify has been sort of infringed upon yeah I um I have a daughter who's four and I think that journey from going into that assimilation stage that so many people grow up with of I need to try and fit in and I need to reject that side of myself that is within a minoritized group and try to assimilate into the dominant white group because they are so much better served and then just seeing her like the other day and I know this I discussed this with you Kaya is that she said to me mommy my favorite hair color is blonde like I want to be blonde she's got um hair like you Claire she's got like dark lovely curly hair and it really broke my heart like you know I throughout the day I had this really horrible feeling in myself that I couldn't make go away and I realized it was because of this comment that she made but I'm fully aware that it's a journey that she has to go on like I can't force her to like being um or like that part of herself that is Chinese like like her whole self so I'm really grateful I know it's such a hard question and it does dig into a lot of trauma for people like I don't want to minimize the fact that this is a really tough conversation to try and have um but hopefully you know like all of us she can go through a sense of like integration of like accepting you know, all sides of herself, not just thinking, oh, I have to try and be something that a lot of people have the power to gatekeep. So no, thank you so much, so much for that. Um, I'm obviously- a whole separate podcast we could do about that. But- <laughs> I know, I know, like I, I realised that topic. <laughs> this episode is supposed to be about publishing and we've gone into like the deepest depths of identity, but it all, it all plays a part. It's important um, thing to discuss. But yes, um, obviously you both work within the industry of publishing in, uh, you know, different avenues. I'm interested to know what were your perceptions of the publishing world before you started working in it? Um, so I was reviewing books for quite a long time before I wrote my book. Um, and I was probably writing, uh, writing book reviews for like eight years or seven years, maybe. Um, and I've always been interested in reviewing books um, by authors um, from East and Southeast Asia, um, usually books in translation. Um, and yeah, I've kind of like built my whole career based around that in a sense. Um, And I feel really naive now, um, like looking back, but I just kind of assumed that, I I think I I knew that I could write on those books because I was always trying to understand the author's perspective. And, um, you know, um, I don't know, it's really hard to explain what I mean, but anyway, um, <laughs> I guess what I didn't realize was that book reviewing was so white. Um, and I didn't realize that because my experience of 
book reviewing was me doing it. And that sounds so stupid and so naive now, but I, I assumed, and because I was pitching books to editors and they were saying, yes, like, oh, this sounds really interesting, we'll review it. Um, I assumed that there was kind of a lot of interest um, in books by people from all over the place, but I think a lot of it was actually just coming from me. Um, and yeah, and I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, reviewers kind of weren't being, I guess, weren't being like picked to write on books that they might have a perspective on that was interesting, if that makes sense. Um, so that, that's been quite a surprise um, having now got my own book out um, and it being reviewed only by white people. Um, and then publishing, uh, I think I'm just like an optimistic person and I've been like disappointed by everything. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I was really surprised that say for instance, Waterstones, they decide so much in an author's career and it's so important that Waterstones likes your book and you've got like these buyers for Waterstones that are so important in like deciding on people's careers. But there's like only one or maybe two, I think. Um, and it's like every book is being presented to them. They're deciding the career of like every author essentially, um, but they're not representing the readership or the people writing the book. Like most of the time they are just white and from like a middle-class background. So I found that really shocking. Um, and yeah, it's, I met the children's book buyer um, for Waterstones, who's, I mean, she seems really nice. Um, and, but it was just so strange, like knowing that she had so much power and, and I just, I thought like, oh, so she's kind of being shown books and, if she likes the look of a book, then maybe she'll promote it a lot in Waterstones and it'll really make this author's career. But like, what if she's shown books that she just can't relate to, that she doesn't realize that people need? Um, so that was quite, yeah. I don't know, there's definitely like inequality in the, the background in publishing, I think. Yeah, that was really depressing. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> so much to like, complain about. <laughs> oh, sure. I think it's, uh, well, I was going to say, Kaya, I saw you nodding along there. That's very true. Um, there's more stuff I want to say on that, but I suppose that might come up later. I think I was the same. I'm, I was very naive when I went into the industry and I actually had no concept of quite how like racist or nepotistic it would be, to be honest, which sound, sounds naive now, but I think, I had this perception because it's liberal and creative. I mean, I'm not a liberal, I'm a socialist, but that's irrelevant here. It's like the perception of the arts are like liberal and creative like industry or industries. And they are, but obviously like the society and the structures that we live in, the government that we have, there are the same problems like um, discrimination and a lack of equality and representation. I, d I suppose I didn't think about that at um, 21 when I naively thought that because, you know, English was my first language and I love literary fiction that I would be able to become an editor without quite so many kind of barriers like discrimination, like endless microaggressions. It just didn't cross my mind, to be honest. The, the publishing industry, I feel like, presents a face 
that is very like pro-diversity and it's always like oh we support you know all these people and it's so important etc etc um but the reality is that that's not really the case like it it is like I mean coming back to like capitalism it is all about money and it's about sales and um like I find it so strange that like for instance publishing uh looks at like previous sales of previous books to see how much of an advance they might give to an author so they might look and say oh this book was really successful so let's invest loads of money in this book um instead of like you know like just believing in something and supporting something it's all to do with what happened before and what existed before and what did well before and then it's kind of like um you get books that don't have much money put behind them mm. and of course they don't do that well if they're not being marketed a lot and um yeah publishing is still like it's talking about change and it's talking mm. about diversity but ultimately it's still looking at what did well in the past and um promoting the same books as what was successful in the past like the money's all going mm. into um although maybe things are changing I don't know but generally speaking I think I think they're changing slowly and you're right and that's a real problem especially in the genre of kind of literary fiction and more experimental books and books from like sort of underrepresented communities so that there isn't that because there isn't that track record because no one's been publishing those people previously then yeah. you know there will be low low advance payments and then there won't be any marketing or publicity spend and then the book inherently won't you know it won't do well because no one knows it exists or because like you say there's only one person at Waterstones gatekeeping everything and it's not anything they've ever seen before or can resonate with so to me there's kind of like two two like major issues here in terms of like the industry where we are like what and what needs to change and I suppose the first is like this kind of like middle class white liberal racism like white feminism everyone should go read that book by the way by Kerbeck it's amazing and it's very insidious and it's quite hard to call out because uh, the, obviously the industry historically has been white and upper middle class so it used to be very common to be like the first and only person of color ever hired especially in like an editorial team or an agent literary agency so the kind of real gatekeepers of the, the books themselves essentially you know people would always make assumptions about like how well you spoke English um, mispronounce your name daily despite endless correction would mistake you to say the one other person across the whole industry that's the same ethnicity <laughs> like you know they would just be daily microaggressions and I think perhaps slowly some of that is changing but I think to me the bigger issue and this relates to people of color too is actually the kind of cronyism nepotism classism I don't like the word classism but I don't have a better one I'm afraid as an editor is what needs to change because people genuinely get senior jobs without experience because they have famous parents famous writer parents say um, and most people need parents who can either pay their mortgage or at least a family home they can live in rent free because a kind of stand so that your salary would be say pocket money like you can be an editor for a decade and be on say 25 to 30k a year in London so how are you going to pay your rent bills travel groceries or have any quality of life while you do all of your editing and reading unpaid in the evenings and weekends if you want to advance um it and means you can't have a second job and that's a really huge barrier to entry and retainment I mean I basically 
struggle to live like this but continue doing it because I there's a part of me that loves it and we can talk about well that loves literature so much and wants to make certain changes um that sees it as almost worth it but it's not sustainable and it's the hugest barrier of entry to you know to people of color because the the handful of people of color in the industry have to be upper middle class you know working class like black or brown person can never ever get access and then exist within that industry um and that's that's the reality of it so yeah i suppose those are those are the issues with it and the things i didn't really consider before i before i joined essentially yeah i definitely thought that publishing would be more diverse in terms of like uh background yeah i thought that there'd be a lot more diversity in terms of class and publishing um i actually had i haven't really talked about this publicly um, but I had a book contract before meeting um, and it was a non-fiction book and I've been reminded about it because you were talking about white feminism and um, it was a non-fiction book um, about uh, basically on Venus um, all of the creators are named after women um, so like musicians, composers, scientists, um, authors etc um and I was writing a book about some of the women that the creators were named after and um firstly the kind of the meeting with the publisher was really I felt so like like it was really hard to speak I just felt so shy and like small because I walked into the room and I think it was like 15 white people were in there and that was it and I sat down everyone was completely silent and I sat down and my chair like squeaked and um, <laughs> it was so awkward and horrible um and my editor was lovely but um it just felt like I'd like entered into this like tribunal where I was being judged or something I don't know it was really weird um but then the process of, of writing the book um a lot of the women I was writing about they did a lot of kind of very problematic things. Um, one of them, Hayashi Fumiko, a Japanese writer, was a part of the Japanese army. And um, she, so she was a journalist in the Japanese army. Um, and she didn't report on any of the atrocities that the Japanese army did. She was basically like writing propaganda. Um, but the, she wrote some really beautiful novels as well. Um, but she never apologised during her life. And that was something I wanted to write about, obviously, in the chapter. Um, and then there are some other things, like uh, one of the chapters is about Frida Kahlo. And I wanted to write about, like, um, she connected with Georgia O'Keeffe, who had another creator named after her. Um, and I wanted to write about how Frida Kahlo kind of, like, uh, was known for kind of compulsive lying. Um, and lying about like them having a sexual relationship, which I found so fascinating. Um, but there was another woman who owned slaves. Um, and so I was writing about all these things. Um, also the fact that all of the artists, of all the artists who had creators named after them, none of them were black. Um, and my editor basically um, was of the belief, of the belief, is that the right phrase? Is that a phrase? Of the mind? Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, she believed that the book should only celebrate women. 
Mm. So she, um, it was kind of like very small comments here and there, just saying, mm. um, like highlighting bits where I'd um, essentially blamed the women for the things that they'd done, where she said, do you think that this book is the place for this kind of thing? Um, and yeah, it was just this really weird uh, experience of like feminism being considered more important than these other issues that I think were almost all exclusively race related. Um, and yeah, so that was, it was such a weird like first foray into publishing and it was so, and I ended up cancelling the book as well. And then I quickly wrote Women Eating um, after that. But um, yeah, it was such a negative kind of first experience. Um, and everyone, everyone that I met at the publisher was white and very upper middle class, I'd say. Um, yeah, it's like that. You could, I found that just anytime you go into any kind of literary space, it's like always being, the, everyone looks at you, people ask you different questions or even just say, you know, random things like, my sister just came back from Japan. You might be interested. Like you <laughs> talk to me like a human being and continue the conversation you're having. I'm, you know, I'm no different in some senses. Um, but yeah, it's that sense. I used to feel very, very uncomfortable walking to any literary spaces for the, for the mm. same reason. Mm. Um, I want to say that I always love Virago Claire's um, current publisher. They've actually published my favourite East Asian authors ever. So just to put something positive in there. Obviously, I haven't written a book with them, but I'm, I really respect some of the editors there, and they have published some of my favourite authors, including now Claire. I absolutely love them eating, so. Yeah, Virago have been amazing. Like, it, it feels like a different industry almost. Like, it's it's been such contrast. Um, and they've, like, they've listened and like treated me like a human as well <laughs> um and yeah they're, they're just so nice and caring and it's like completely different to what I first experienced mm. um but yeah my expectations going in were very low at that point but <laughs> um but yeah they exceeded them very very far um, I think um, especially I think working with BC and I've come to that realization as well. It's so important to keep your expectations low, especially when you're trying to work uh, with people who, you know, largely have no knowledge of your lived experience, uh, don't know how to approach conversations about, you know, being part of a minoritized community. And um, this really reminded me, actually, when you mentioned, Claire, about that children's sort of um, buyer at Waterstones mm -hmm. that um, when Georgie Ma and Anna Chan tried to speak to the publisher of the book by David Walliams, The World's Worst Children, you know, trying to get them to realise that there are really horrible stories in there about a variety of different characters from um, different backgrounds. You know, there's lots of fat phobia, there was anti-blackness, there's there was a character, Brian Wong, who never gets anything wrong, you know, such a horrible sort of um, line about this East Asian child. And um, 
what I felt like about that process was that they were really relying on the benevolence of um, the people who create that book in order to understand and because they hold all the power if they don't feel very generous in terms of listening to you or you know relinquishing some of that power and giving it over to the people who are directly impacted by very problematic stories um, there's really nowhere to go you're hitting your head against the wall and uh, I could see the impact it was having on various people you know it is really hard to try and explain um, your own trauma, explain your own past to try and get them to understand. And really, they could just ignore your email and then carry on because David Williams brings in a lot of money. I was about to say that. It all comes back to money, doesn't it, in capitalism? But also having to explain it is, and I think people get naturally defensive because no one wants to be accused, especially if like most people in publishing don't think of themselves as racist you know they don't identify as racist they're not like you you do get people that are like yeah I'm racist not a parent they don't but that doesn't you know we live in a racist country we all have internalized racism we all think racist almost I think it's like intrusive thoughts but people don't like to just be told you can do it as politely as possible because the sort of a wall comes up and rather than sitting with like I've said something unintentionally offensive and learning there's this sort of reaction to kind of put it back onto you like are you being oversensitive or is this subjective and I've noticed that a lot you know I could flag up like racist language in a book and say you know no you know you can't say that people have slitty eyes and then it becomes a whole debate but with a room of white people like why why do you you know why are you trying to limit what people say are you gatekeeping can't anyone write anything kind of thing and it's yeah yeah we really rely on that i think critical mass of people to come together and actually call it out and or call it in rather and say you know there is a problem and you know um you mentioned being in largely white spaces and finding out really hard and if there were more people who are either east or southeast asian and you don't have to be ec in order to you know speak up and defend you know anyone can be part of that but it is important to you know build up that sort of um larger voice around that sort of um, working in the industry. But of course, I would really love to talk about now, Claire, your novel, Woman Eating. Congratulations, um, as we have been constantly saying from the beginning, I absolutely love it, like, I don't know, like how much more I can say it. But um, yeah, could you tell us more about it? Um, Yes. (laughs) I'm really bad at talking about my novel and like summing it up, but I will try. Um, The way I've talked about my novel has changed over time um, as I've recognized that certain aspects of the novel haven't been talked about um, and so so yeah the I'm kind of at a point where I just don't even know how to talk about it anymore <laughs> I don't know what it is um, but uh, at its essence it's about Lydia um, a so she's a mixed race um so she's british malaysian japanese um artist and she's living in london um away from her mother for the first time um and uh, she's also a vampire and um i always say that last and i'm getting into the habit of saying that last just because i think sometimes when i say the word vampire people kind of like zone out um <laughs> if they're not interested in vampires which i completely understand as someone who doesn't read vampire fiction um and yeah I think the book is it's it's mostly I mean I I decided to write about a vampire 
because I saw it as a kind of useful tool for um, exploring the kind of feelings of being mixed and different in a lot of ways. Um, and so it always had that kind of very human starting point. Um, and yeah, and a lot of the book is about food as well, which we've talked about a bit already. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about food and kind of finding your identity um, in cuisine or failing to find your identity in cuisine since she's a vampire and can only drink blood. Um, but yeah, it's about hunger, I guess. Mm, yeah, actually, um, when I was writing sort of a mini review of it for the BC newsletter, that was the bit that really stood out for me was that I really felt that Lydia's hunger um, for food and, you know, the human taste of things was to me a parallel with her hunger to find a sense of belonging and a sense of knowing where she's from and maybe for all of us and certainly for me I feel like I'm constantly on that journey like when I was reading about it, it's just like yeah Lydia I you know I totally feel you and really you know the things that were really small in the novel that actually stood out massively for me were the small details I think like how you mentioned that um she's walking on Vauxhall and follow Korean vegan and I was just like oh my god like this is exactly me I live in South London I follow Korean oh my god Lydia. Um, but yeah, Kaya, how did the book resonate with you? I've been really excited to discuss this because like so many of the themes from like hunger to eat to belong as a metaphor is to belong. But also, yeah, the idea of the monstrous really, really and sort of loneliness as, and as the other side of desiring to belong really like connected with me. And I felt that Claire explored them in such a like clever, powerful, like fresh, cool, like original way, which really excited me. I think in terms of the food side of things I related to like Lydia's inability to eat in the sense like for very this is very personal now but I'm comfortable talking about it I guess so let's let's um let's get into it when I was younger I used to really hate being asked like what do you eat at home it's mm -hmm. like this kind of question that everyone would ask you right like all the yeah. white kids at school and I hated being asked um because it reminded me that I just ate whatever my mum could afford to give me like half a tin of sweet corn or something but like but also that I didn't eat Chinese food because I didn't have a Chinese father because he'd abandoned us so being asked was sort of like a reminder of this rejection um and then I as I got older I sort of avoided eating Chinese food specifically because I, it was almost like I just wanted to try and appear white so I could I, it, I felt that it was a racist microaggression without knowing what that language was and my, the sort of unconscious part of me just thought if I just ignore that and pretend it's not happening and then don't do it don't engage in the act of eating it maybe people will stop I don't know treating me differently I know it sounds very naive but I was I suppose very young when I was started doing things like that um, and then as I did get a bit older and became more aware of racism I just, I just continued wanting to be seen as white. And also I suppose I'd avoided eating Chinese food for so long. <laughs> I didn't really ever, and I still had this complicated feelings about my father. There was no like desire for me to really start until I was in my like mid to late twenties. Like as a child, my mom would take me to Chinatown to eat at New Year, but I always felt like an imposter. Um, and in the same way, like now years later, I, you know, I do eat, <laughs> Do eat Chinese food all the time and I'm really grateful to have met like Chinese friends that take me for food like but I always feel like some sort of outsider you know and I browse the menu even though I'm like not quite sure 
what I'm looking at like I feel like I'm looking at it like some super ignorant white person that's never had it for the first time so that's the food and then I suppose linked to that is a sense of like not belonging and loneliness and otherness which I also really related to and felt very deeply when I was growing up for the reasons I've already discussed but I think the thing that really excited me most is actually this, the vampire trope. I never read like vampire novels or like anything like that normally either, but just the this idea of the monstrous as like a or other as like a metaphor for someone being mixed race and living between two worlds essentially is interesting. I was hoping that I, that's how I understood it, so I was hoping I'd interpret it correctly. And um, especially when we sort of how consider also how people of colour, you know, have been depicted as monstrous in art, literature, racist tropes themselves are dehumanising. So it's like a very, very interesting thing. Um, and it resonated again with me for very deeply personal reasons. Like my absent father did what I think of as some quite abusive things before he left. And while my mother never painted it that way, I... I always felt that he was monstrous. She ne certainly never painted it that well. She wanted me to be able to learn Mandarin. She wanted me to go to China, but you know, I wanted by myself with no family, but it never came from her, it came from me. And so therefore when I, when I started actually looking a lot more Chinese as I got into my teens, I looked a lot more Western, I think when I was younger, I, um, I had this sense that I was somehow like half monstrous as well because of my father and not specifically because he wasn't white because I think if he'd been present and you know I'd have had a very different relationship with my Asianness by that age I think when you're you know the age of your daughter Amy and you're at school and you but I think my relationship would would, would have changed I, I imagine by then but sorry that's really long I'm like taking up so much time but yeah that that like sort of half half vampire half human trope really spoke to me actually as well I love how you both talk like so eloquently about my book and I really fail to <laughs> <laughs> I think the kind of monstrousness um it was that definitely came from um the kind of the way that particularly in the area that I grew up in um where I think the Second World War is still seen as kind of like the best time ever. Um, <laughs> and they look back at it kind of with a lot of nostalgia. Um, and uh, obviously the Japanese were the enemy. And I, while growing up, I was always very aware of the fact that Japan was seen as kind of this monstrous, barbaric uh, race. Um, and so as an adult, I've kind of, actively sought out stories where um Japanese people are more humanized which is basically stories written by Japanese people um but also kind of you know um narratives about the war that are actually from the other side that look at the kind of civilian victims and stuff and um it's it's kind of I guess through doing all of that I've recognized that I growing up I did kind of internalize that kind of monstrousness um and yeah, I, I think that was kind of partly what interested me about the vampire. Um, but yeah, food, um, I really loved the idea that, I mean, it sounds really cool, but um, I really loved the idea of this vampire who wasn't able to eat the food of her heritage. Um, and that's something that I could relate to having grown up uh, in Margate and um, our family were really poor as well. We weren't able to, to go to Japan until I was 19. Um, and so 
I had the weird experience of like white people saying, oh, I go to Japan like every year and we eat this amazing food. Like, do you like this food? And do you like this food? And I'd be like, oh no, I've never actually heard of it. <laughs> um, and they'd be like, oh, you'll love it and stuff. Um, but it never really felt like mine. Um, yeah, at the same time, occasionally we'd get like food parcels from Japan and it would be like my Japanese family who I barely knew were kind of like welcoming me into their lives via food, um, which was really lovely. And I'd learn like things about my mom through that food and learn about my granddad and my grandmother. Um, so food, it's been like both something that I couldn't access growing up, but also something that it was the only way for me to actually get to know my family in Japan. Um, yeah. Yeah, I always felt like the food part of the novel was actually a main character in itself. There was a journey of developing a relationship with food within the novel. And I think because in East and Southeast Asian culture, food is a really massive deal. And um, mm. I remember, you know, this is a silly little tidbit, but watching a YouTube video of someone who had moved over from China to England uh, with her boyfriend. And um, she explained that when they arrived in England, she was like expecting a meal or something, you know, because welcoming someone with food is what you do in China. But in the UK, apparently her boyfriend's just like, oh, yeah, you can make yourself a sandwich if you're hungry. Where she said in where she was from, um, your whole day is planned around your breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that is how you frame your whole life, basically. And um, I think that's an important kind of reframing of that sort of um, why food matters so much a lot of the time uh, within your identity as an East and Southeast Asian person. And for example, I was thinking the other day about rice and the fact that say in Cantonese language there's lots of way to describe rice there's one word for uncooked rice and there's a word for cooked rice and then in English it's just like rice because it's not really that important it was very interesting to me and I, I want to ask you Claire with regards to you know the fact that the novel did enter into the world and reach different people readers like Kaya and I, and also um, reviewers and literary critics. How did you find that reception? Um, so it's been really strange because I've I've had some really really lovely positive reviews. Um, like they've all been good, and every review has kind of been treated as like a kind of good news thing with my agent and my publisher. You know, um, and they've all been like, "Oh, congratulations! It's great!" And it is great um but in the UK when it comes to like the big papers uh no one who reviewed the book has engaged with um the parts of the book about being mixed race um and consequently uh they haven't really engaged in the um parts of the book about like cuisines as well which I found really strange just because that was kind of the starting point for me um and then I've seen kind of other things like um you know in I think it was I don't know what the bookshop was but it was like a table with my book on it and I had the sign saying um Sally Rooney meets Twilight oh. and <laughs> um and I thought like okay it's great the book's being sold but then it's just it's so weird 
being compared to one, a series of books that are racist, and then two, just a white woman who kind of is like, <laughs> um, who's become kind of like the icon of like, she, she represents, I guess, millennials essentially. Um, but it was like, I don't know, like if, if, if I was Sally Rooney meets Twilight, I would definitely be white. <laughs> um <laughs> skin. it was just it felt like such a kind of like I felt like that sign really summed up how a lot of reviewers were kind of approaching the book um and it's kind of oh there's so much to talk about about this because I think in on one hand like there's the editors right who are commissioning the reviews is it important to commission a review by someone who might have a perspective on the book that you're commissioning. So say for instance, if the book is by someone um, who's either East or Southeast Asian um, British, do you then commission a reviewer who's not white? Like, is that important? And then, but then also at the same time, um, like, is it the re reviewer's responsibility to actually like think about the things that they can't necessarily relate to? but they're important in the book. Um, and I think that that is the reviewer's responsibility. At least it's a responsibility I take on myself. Like I don't just review books by half Japanese people. That would be really, I mean, I wouldn't have many books to review for one, <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I just found it really interesting that that wasn't something that, I don't know whether it's like fear, like maybe, or just not knowing how to talk about um east and southeast asian experiences or just not i don't, I don't know what it was but it was even considering them maybe i think probably not knowing more than fear of that um mm. not knowing or not being on their radar and part of me was like idealistically yes maybe you should commission a review from you know someone from that background another part of me thinks it doesn't always have to be the case because i think i think just more generally speaking in the industry of if even if like it's an industry full of white people I just get the sense that these people also maybe both professionally because the industry is like 90% white middle class but also personally outside of work don't interact with any other people people of color people like queer people like marginalized communities in any way because you don't necessarily have to be a person of color to like to know certain things are offensive to know that certain things mean certain things to certain communities is my point and I think that seems like a very realistic ask, no? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think um, the a lot of the reviewers tended to be a bit older. And I wondered whether, um, I mean, obviously I've written a book that isn't just about human. It's not just about like uh, the experience of being mixed race in Britain. It is about a vampire. Um, so it is a little bit complex, like they're, I do think some editors probably were like, oh, we need someone who knows about vampire fiction to write on this book, for instance, um, which obviously isn't the case when you actually read the book. <laughs> um, but um, the demographic for readers of vampire fiction and fantasy generally are, are extremely, it's extremely white. Um, and... Yeah, but obviously, like on like if you just hear the word vampire, then maybe it's just yeah. like, oh, to find someone who knows about vampires rather than thinking, oh, we need to know, find someone who knows about what it's like to be mixed race. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the book couldn't really be further from the vampire book, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like what comes out is that it just the more sort of um, different perspectives you can get from a variety of people, the better, really. And, you know, for me, hearing from the perspective of someone from any background um, is really important. But what is really limiting is if every single person who reviews a book is from a very sort of narrow demographic, then you do miss out so much of that nuance and that detail, which is in the novel. Um, but yes, moving on from that, I would love to hear from both of you sort of books you've been reading and really loved or your favorite authors. Um, I know Kaya, maybe you've had a few small thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, this is like my favorite question. I'm like rolling my <laughs> sleeves up and getting ready. Um, I would go on forever, but I won't. There are three um, three Asian American authors that I'm obsessed with. I want to start with just talking about Aro Kwan because I talk about Aro Kwan every day to everyone I meet and bore them to death probably. But um, she wrote this novel called The Incendiaries, also published by Virago. And I truly believe that this is the greatest novel of all time. Now, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as an editor, but just in terms of the way she actually crafts the sentences, but also the themes and the way she approaches narrative voice, like to me, that's the reason that I want to be an editor, the reason I keep fighting to be an editor. It like nothing has ever moved me, excited me or spoken to me on quite the same level. Um, it's inspired by her loss of faith. Um, I've never been religious, but you don't need to, to in any way to relate to it. It's a novel about grief and about how to live when you lose what you love most. Um, just generally, she's amazing. She's like one of my biggest inspirations. She wrote this really powerful letter to Asian American women in the wake of the Atlanta shootings. Uh, it was so powerful and moving. And she also wrote a piece on abortion in Vanity Fair recently as well that I would recommend everyone reading. So I'm just completely in awe of her writing. Like, I think if I could read one book only in my lifetime, it would be her. And the other two I'll mention slightly more briefly, but I'm obsessed with Ocean Gyeong. Um, I know people are quite divided. Some people prefer his poetry to his novel. I love both. I think I prefer On Earth with Briefly Gorgeous to Time with Mother slightly. Just, again, love his radical approach to form, the way he explores addiction, violence, race, trauma, masculinity with such humanity. And I also just think like R.O. Kwan, like the way he writes is so like otherworldly beautiful without ever being sentimental or cliche or florid or anything. It's, just blows my mind and lastly Pam Zhang how much these hills is gold also published by Virago um just because it's such a fierce subversive reimagining of the American West and like a reconceptualizing of the immigrant narrative sort of writing these Chinese siblings into that um I think it's really important to like make new myths and write your community into history and the way she did that is really really smart and again it's just really I am a literary snob I'm sorry it's really really beautifully written <laughs> So those are my my three, but Aro Kwan, like seriously, <laughs> will blow your mind. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, everyone, you you've had your directions from Kaya. Please check out Aro Kwan. Um, how about you, Claire? Um, I'm actually reading On Earth. We're briefly gorgeous right now. Um, I started it today, so I haven't got very far, but it is really beautiful. Um, but I read his poetry first. I'm coming to his novel second, so. Um, but yeah, I really love it so far. And I know people are divided, aren't they? People, I think, yeah, people generally, I get the feel for his poetry, but mm. I do. Um, so writers I really like. So, okay, 
this is actually um, a question I was asked a few months ago after doing a kind of like live conversation event in America. It was just, I mean, I wasn't in America as a kind of online thing. And the event organizer asked me what books I like, and I gave a list and they were all Asian. Um, and then he said, do you have any that aren't Asian? Oh. And I know. <laughs> and I was, I mean, in the moment, I was just completely thrown and was like, oh my God, I need to like think of someone random. And the first person that came into my head was Tofi Anson the woman who wrote the movements <laughs> <So random. laughs> um, but she did write some really beautiful books for adults so they're like so beautiful um but it was so like irrelevant to my writing and I just left the event feeling really weird because I'd ended up kind of talking about Toby Anson for ages um which I realize I'm doing now as well <laughs> <laughs> but yeah my favorite books I really I actually really don't like this question so I'm the opposite of you um but <laughs> I'll keep going forever so. <laughs> um I really love Where the World Ladies Are by Marta Alcor it's published by Tilted Access Press and um translated by Polly Botton and it is it's amazing. Um, Polly, um, she's actually a friend, um, but she she translates some really interesting Japanese fiction. I always feel kind of like quite grateful to her because I can't read in Japanese. So I feel like she kind of like allows me to explore like Japanese literature um, and like really interesting kind of um, corners of Japanese literature. Um, the Weather World Ladies Are is basically, it's like interconnected short stories um, based on Japanese kind of folk tales, so yokai stories, um, but they're all kind of, um, they're all about women and they're all feminist and it's just, it's, am it's amazing, like I, I really struggle to talk about it because it's so good. I just start kind of just saying like positive words and then <laughs> not making sense. <laughs> but it's so good. And I wish it was like better known in the UK. I don't I don't think many people know about it, but it's just, oh my God, it's so good. Maybe it's because we don't have much of an appetite for short stories in the UK, I find. But oh my God, it's like amazing. Like I don't normally highlight things in books, but I was highlighting things in books and like texting it to people. Um, which... I do that. I highlight. I do always highlight, and I take. I take pictures of the page and I send them. I, <laughs> I love. I never normally do that, but this book, it was just. Oh my god, it's so good, and it's. Um, all the women in it are kind of like monstrous in their own ways, but like just, it's just so wonderful. There's like, oh yeah. Anyway, read it. It's good, um, and uh, I really like. The playwright Lorraine Hansbury um, and she's been kind of like I'd say a bit of an obsession for me for like several years um, I just love her and I love um, yeah she's just amazing she was writing kind of in the first half of the 20th century in Harlem um, and she she's just yeah, she's amazing. She wrote Raisin in the Sun, which was the first um, play on Broadway by a black woman. Um, and she writes in this, she's just such a kind of, um, she writes about really harrowing, um, difficult 
topics like a lot on racism um <clears throat> a lot on slavery as well but she does so in like such a basically all of her characters very human that's the only way I can think um of describing it they're very human um and it's just yeah she's just such a beautiful writer I really struggle talking about writing so I just like can't describe it like the more I like a writer I just yeah um Lorraine Hansberry is amazing um yeah and I really like Hang Kang um particularly the white book um which is about it's kind of a book written uh to it's 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 kind of partly about grief but also about this sister that she never knew um so it's not exactly grief it's like a little bit more complex um and I feel like that for me like for instance I I met my so I'm going off, off on a tangent um but I met my second cousin um a few years ago and you know when you meet someone you just like connect immediately and like I feel like we loved each other from the moment we saw each other it was really lovely um and we've got the same knuckles as well which is like <laughs> it was important but um yeah we just connected immediately and I felt like we'd almost like grown up together even though we hadn't and like in a kind of parallel world we had grown up together for like and we'd actually known each other for like the 25 years that we didn't know each other um and yeah Hang Kang's the white book I felt like kind of I connected to that aspect of like grieving for something that didn't even happen or exist um yeah well, thank you so much for that, everyone. You now have even more books to add on your to be read list. Um, thank you so much to both of you, Kaya and Claire, for joining us on this podcast today. And uh, yeah, just thank you. <laughs> so that was our brilliant conversation with Kaya and Claire. Thank you so much to the both of them. Um, I feel like I've gone on a roller coaster of emotions. So let's get those tickets to Margate booked. I need some of that fresh seaside air. Do remember to follow both Kaya and Claire on Instagram. Kaya can be found at Kaya Shang and Claire can be found at Claire Coda. Thanks to the both of you for making that really easy. Um, do, do, do read Claire's debut novel, Woman Eating, and check out her essay in the East Side Voices book, a compendium of essays celebrating East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain. It's really, really beautiful. Also, Kaya has a lot going on, but I do have to mention the upcoming book that she has been working on with Friend of Be Seen and in general, wonderful human being, Tori Choi. It's called It's Not Just You, How to Navigate Eco-Anxiety and the Climate Crisis. So, of course, do follow Be Seen on the social media as well. We can be found at Be Seen with a dot between the A and the N for Instagram. And we can be found on Twitter at B-E-S-E-A underscore N. Do throw us some money if you want to donate to us. We are a completely voluntary organization. So any amount that you can give would be much appreciated and goes back into running Be Seen. Head to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com forward slash be seen. And also keep an eye out on our website because we will be giving you updates on this year's East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month. Thank you once again for listening and yeah, chat with you soon. Bye, 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 bye.